Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hello, Pretty Mental family. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're so excited to be back here with you guys today. And this conversation that we have for you is so incredibly delicious and important and relevant. And it's wild to me how little attention has been paid to this in the mental health and just medical world in general. So for today's podcast, we had the incredible Charlie Morley on to talk to us about his book and his practices and his research. And the name of his book is called Wake Up to Sleep. And this is a conversation on all things sleep and dreaming and how we can consciously access these states and and collaborate with our mind and our natural processes to heal trauma while we are sleeping to improve our daily lives. I mean, there's so much here that I can't possibly encapsulate into an intro or even into a one hour podcast. I'm definitely going to be studying this book. And I think you guys will too, after hearing this. So good. We talked about lucid dreaming nightmares. We talked about all the things I seriously wish I could just pick Charlie's brain for hours. The next workshop he puts out, I'm in. I want all the things from him because it, we really don't know that much about the sleeping state. You just know like eight hours is what you do sometimes if you're lucky enough. And that's about as far as it goes. But as someone who has experienced not sleeping and sleeping, I mean, like you need a whole manual on how to operate off sleep. Yeah. You know, there's just so much more attention that needs to be paid to this component of our lives because it literally impacts Everything. Everything. It's so annoying <laughs> and amazing <laughs> once you learn how to hack it. And I'm now back on the journey of learning how to hack it, as you will hear in this podcast. We're going to put the link to Charlie's book in the show notes, along with all the ways that you can get more information on him. He has so much amazing info that is here to really help all of us, whether you just want to learn how to lose a dream, whether you are dealing with trauma, you can figure out how to heal it in your sleep with lucid dreaming, whether you're, you have reoccurring nightmares and have no idea what they even mean. Charlie shed some really amazing light on that as well. So all the things, all the things, pretty mental fam, get ready for this one. And with that pretty mental family, take in a deep breath. And tune in. Before we jump into the episode, we want to highlight our sponsor, Conscious Conversion. 
recently known as Resonate with Sarah. Conscious Conversion is a holistic multimedia marketing agency for thought leaders of the new paradigm. We love them because their main mode of operating, which also filters out the clients they bring on, is making sure that the message is in alignment with your mission in the world and that your mission in this world is in alignment with where the plan is heading right now, that your mission is here to help awaken the planet and move evolution forward. Whatever your offering is, they use Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram ads to cut through the clutter of the internet and amplify your message on a massive scale. They also offer organic social media, copywriting, and so much more. We'll link their website in the show notes if you guys are interested in more information. We highly suggest you check them out if your ears perk up when you hear this. We also want to highlight our second sponsor, Awaken Village Press, an indie publishing house who is here to awaken the planet one book at a time. Whether you are a current author or an author-to-be, Awaken Village Press is here to guide you every single step of the way from the idea stage to the publishing stage. We all have a message to share and Awaken Village Press is here to help you birth yours and bring it out into the universe. When we liberate our messages, we first liberate ourselves and then we liberate everyone else who comes in contact with our words. We are going to put all of their information in the links below in the show notes. So make sure to check them out. And now back to our episode. Calling in our higher selves, calling in our ancestors, our angels, our spirit guides, and all of the energies that walk with us in this lifetime. Calling in all of the energies that walk with our community in this lifetime. We open ourselves up fully to whatever healing messages want to come through, to whatever guidance wants to come through. We show up in our full authenticity for the highest healing of ourselves, for the highest healing of our community, and for the highest healing of the planet. The portal is now open. Charlie, <laughs> welcome to Pretty Mental. Thank you for having me. It's cool to be here. The puppy is really ready to be here too. She literally <laughs> the room. said, welcome. She went, tick, tick, tick. so she yeah. might be making some weird noises. So please know it's her and not me. Yeah, we always have little little doggy um companions that like to join in on the podcast so yeah especially anything, you must, anything you must have filmed or recorded on um like during lockdown right because everyone's just with dogs or everyone's got a dog in lockdown but yeah it seems like totally normal now to have dogs joining like zoom conversations yeah it's totally part of the the protocol or the expectation now during oh, these good. sessions so yeah so charlie your book is so fascinating. I we're so excited to uh, your book and your work and everything that you're teaching um, about sleep is is so uh, thought provoking and exciting. So we're definitely excited to share you with our community. If you just kind of want to introduce yourself and tell them what you're all about. Sure. Actually, until the question was asked, I didn't realize how closely those two journeys are for me actually until you asked that question just before we went on air um 
because my kind of lead into all the dream stuff that I do now, and especially the lead into trauma-affected sleep, was linked to a mental health issue. Well, mental health issue, mental health experience. I had like a full-on near-death experience when I was 17 from a drugs overdose. Um, and I had, like, I'd been into lucid dreaming for a few years before then, for a couple of years before that, um, just as a teenager, like buying these books about lucid dreaming and teaching myself how to become conscious in my dreams and like directing the dreams and having loads of sex and skateboarding and stuff like that. But I didn't know it had any kind of spiritual aspect to it. Um, but then around the same time, I was also doing loads of psychedelics and, um, yeah, I had this like massive, uh, yeah, overdose with like acid and ketamine. I had this full on tunnel of light near death experience. My heart stopped and like the end of the tunnel, there was this like experience with God, but God was just my voice asking me if I wanted to live or die. And I was like, fuck live. And then I heard my like heart restart. Well, I thought I, later I realized it was that it sounded like drums, like boom, 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 boom. And I was like, what are those drums? And I was like, oh, shit, it's not my heart like restarting. So after that, I had really bad nightmares. You know, now if I had like an ayahuasca-induced near-death experience or something like that, I'd be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I've got all these tools to work with this and integrate it. But at 17, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I just thought I'd gone mad. I was like, I fucked up my brain. Because after that, I was having these really bad nightmares, panic attacks. And there was a time when I was like locked in the toilet. Sorry, the puppy's got a toy locked in the toilet cubicle um, at school because like the world was too big and I'm locked in there and I haven't slept the night before from these nightmares. And I was like, dude, like you, you've got to get a hold of this. And I remember thinking I had two options. One is to go to like the school nurse and tell her what I was feeling, which is that I couldn't tell the difference between the waking state and reality. And I think part of me died and never came back. And I kind of knew that if I did that, I was going to get sectioned or like, you know, taken away somewhere or medicated. So I thought, okay. And the other thing is, remember those lucid dreaming books you were reading a couple of years ago that you used to learn to lucid dream and have just been using it to have sex with girls and like go skateboarding and stuff. In all those books, they all had a chapter on nightmares saying how there's like some burgeoning research that lucid dreaming can be used to treat uh, trauma and nightmares. Now that burgeoning research is like fully fledged and I've actually been part of a couple of the last research studies. So that's now full on, but this is 20 years ago, right? So I go back to those books, I read the chapters and it basically says, if you can become lucid in your nightmare and know that you're dreaming and then turn to face the source of your fear, you can integrate it. That was basically the gist of all of them. I didn't know quite what that meant. So I did manage to become lucid in one of these nightmares and rather than trying to wake myself up, I intentionally stayed in it and like turned to face the nightmare and the nightmare was always the same it was that i was back in the drugs overdose and i was i was like back in the near-death experience basically and this little dwarf dude would appear um with a shaved head and he like symbolized death he was like the grim reaper but that's how he looked for whatever reason and i turned to face him and you know in my ted talk i talk about embracing your demons if i didn't i just went like fuck off but it was empowered i was like oh no that's it. i went like i get it i get it fuck off as in, like, I get it. I know that you're not what you're presenting yourself as. You are a you are a trauma response. Yeah, you know, I didn't have that vocabulary back then, but I kind of went, I get it, I get it. Um, and the dream transformed. And then I woke up and I never had the nightmares again. So actually, right from and that's when then I start taking lucid dreaming seriously. And these other Buddhist books I've been reading, they started to make more sense. So I got into Buddhism after that because to work with the panic attacks and stuff like that. And they got really into lucid dreaming for like mental health reasons. 
because of um, that early experience. So actually, I, that's a really good question you asked because my genesis of doing all this stuff, now 20 years later writing a book, especially for people with trauma-affected sleep, like one of the main chapters in there, or well, one of the chapters at the end on lucid dreaming, the same techniques that I used 20 years ago to heal myself from that PTSD trauma is exactly the same stuff I'm teaching now, just kind of updated. So actually, yeah, my mental health journey is directly linked to that. Um, and then this new book, Wake Up to Sleep, is a book written in lockdown. And in I had like a really tough lockdown, but not because of the lockdown, but because um, in kind of, oh, Halloween. Yeah, Halloween 2019, like my personal life fell apart. Like me and my wife broke up. My mom got a terminal diagnosis. Um, I then entered into like a rebound relationship that ended really badly and was like really bad for both our mental health um and stuff was like really bad I was like in the lowest place I've ever been and that was just when I started writing the book and it was like yeah who am I to write a book about trauma affected sleep when the last time my sleep had been affected by trauma was 20 years ago so now I can really see the lotus from the mud the universe was like oh dude here's your subject matter like because I'm trying to write this book about trauma affected sleep and I can't sleep. You know, I'm waking up with nightmares. I can't get to sleep because my nervous system's so fucked from the trauma of my mum dying and my my marriage breaking down. But now I look back and I go, God, that was perfect. I was really able to check that these techniques work. And then all the work I was doing with veterans before that, then suddenly I was able to relate more to them because now I was in this trauma response. So yeah, I mean, that was like two years ago now, We're coming up to two years ago. Um, so the journey of this book is a journey of integration of trauma, actually. Um, so yeah, good opening question. Most people, that's way cooler than saying, what's your bio? It's like, what's your mental health journey? <laughs> yeah. Because in this case, it is, my, it is my bio, but I'd never thought about that until you asked it. So thank you for the question. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming on so authentically and openly and sharing that oh, with that's, us. That's all I can offer you for sure. Everything else is up for grabs, but I can give you that. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely on this podcast like to lead with, with the real shit, you know, that the human experience for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But the work that you're doing is so fascinating. Like when Valentina brought you up to, to bring you on the podcast, I was like, this is, this is so cool because this is not, I mean, I'm a therapist. I've mm -hmm. been in the field now officially for three years, three mm -hmm. plus years. And going in depth like this about our dream or our sleep mm -hmm. climate is not something that is really paid that much attention to. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you're describing in the book that what we've done to pay attention to it is medicate people or talk about sleep hygiene, yeah. which kind of gets a little bit at the context or the weather of it, I guess you may describe it, but it doesn't get to the climate or even how you talk about your medical professional doctors, uh, friends who get like a two hour seminar in school. Yeah. And six hours of medical training, two hours on sleep. Yeah. Two and yet we know that one in 10 of the ailments that people go to, to, general practitioner doctors with a link to sleep. So like 10% of the workload is going to be related to sleep and yet two hours are dedicated to it. It's crazy. 
And we know that like sleep is, I mean, like America loses like 2% of its GDP every year. That's billions to sleep related illnesses. Just everything could like education, people in education would fare better. Politicians would do better. Social care would work better. If we allowed each other to sleep a bit more, or if we took sleep more seriously, there's no biological condition in the human body that is not adversely affected by insufficient sleep. And there's no biological function in the human body that is not positively affected by getting more sleep. Like, unless you're getting over 10 hours sleep per night, because after 10 hours, you start to get some negative effects to do. It's basically to do with how long you've been exposed to sunlight. If you're sleeping for 10 hours a day and the sun goes down at 6 p.m., you may not have enough exposure to sunlight. Um, But unless you're like nailing like more than 10 hours a night, most of us could do with more sleep. And it doesn't have to be a lot more sleep. Like this is, I'm trying to make it really realistic in this book. If a lot of people reading the book will be working with heavy trauma and may only be averaging like four or five hours sleep a night. So me saying we all need to get to nine hours, which is what the National Sleep Foundation recommends, is kind of crazy for a lot of people. But what we found in the research is if you can just go from four hours to five or from five hours to six, just one extra hour, profound health benefits. How do we know this? From the really interesting research that happens when uh, 1.6 billion people around the world lose and gain one hour's sleep once a year, you know, and the clocks go forward and back, right? Mm-hmm. So that time where like over, across 16 different countries, 1.6 billion people, when they lose an hour's sleep, the next day, there's a 25% increase in heart attacks, like cardiac arrest. Um, there's also an increase in traffic deaths. It all adds up to tens of thousands of, of deaths, more deaths than usual, the day after we lose just one hour sleep. However, on the optimistic side, that time where we all gain an extra hour, the next day, there's a 23% drop in heart attacks. There's a 15% drop in traffic accidents. Uh, Again, all that leads to hundreds of thousands of people's lives saved because they get one extra hour in bed. So like, I'm just saying, could we do an extra hour? Could we find a way to give us one extra hour in bed? If you do, the health benefits are profound. So the kind of myth of the eight hour or trying to hit like nine hours a night Um, I do hit nine hours a night because I'm the sleep guy. I'm obsessed with it. So I have found a way to move my, I mean, I shift my life around this because I know if I can have nine hours sleep, I don't need, I don't drink coffee. I drink like one coffee a week and that'll be on the day where I haven't managed to get my nine hours sleep. But if I can get nine hours, I don't need coffee. I don't nap. I'm in like full energy. I like train martial arts, like hours and hours a week, like nine hours. I'm good. That's not possible for everyone. But if we can just find a way to get an extra hour, the health benefits are huge. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I don't even know where to start. It's like there's so many pieces to this. Uh, but oh, it's can such... I just throw in one more? It's an interesting fact. But it's linked to the one hour thing. So people are thinking like, dude, there's no way I can get an extra hour. I've got like five kids and I work like, you know, 12 hour days. There's no way I can do it. Um, they did these tests at University of California. They give people eight hours sleep and they give them like a cognitive ability test, right? See how well your brain's working. Then the next night they give them four hours sleep. They wake them up, they see, give them the same test, how their brain's working, brain's working terribly because they've only got four hours sleep, right? However, later that day, they give them a one hour nap. So they've only had four hours at night, but then later in the day after lunchtime, they get a one hour nap. Well, no, sorry, between 60 and 90 minute nap. So one to one and a half hour nap. Then they give them the same cognitive ability test and they score the same as after eight hours sleep. That's one of the most optimistic pieces of research I've seen. Because anyone who's had insomnia, myself included, one of the worst things is when you're like, tomorrow's a write-off. Like tomorrow's fucked. 
because I'm only getting three or four hours sleep. Oh my God, why am I even going to bother going to work? I'm going to be terrible. Tomorrow is ruined. Tomorrow isn't ruined. If you can find a way to have a sneaky one hour nap sometime the next day, you can actually raise your cognitive ability levels back up to eight hours sleep. So again, one hour. It's like, I think there's an all or nothing approach to sleep here. People are like, oh, we have to try and get this eight hours. It's like, you don't actually. I mean, it'd be great if you could, but let's work incrementally. And if we work with mental health problems, if we're working with trauma, if we like got high PTSD scores, the likelihood of hitting eight to nine hours is like, it's very unlikely. I'd love to be optimistic, but it's very unlikely. So, and I, I think in the first page of the book, I say that I go, this book is not going to get you to nine hours sleep if you're only averaging four. But could it get you an extra one to two hours? Yeah, totally. And it can definitely do that. And then once you've got that, then you can add another one and be incremental and make slow steps. What comes to my mind with this is, so I dealt with insomnia for many, many, many years. And when I actually reached out to you, I was sleeping really, really well. Uh And recently, my sleep has gone again. Uh-huh. So right now I'm functioning off of like last night mm. where and what you said really resonated where you come into the next day and you're like, I can't tell the difference between you're floating in between yeah. states of you're in between dimensions is what mm. it feels like. Mm. And I know with me, my, my Chinese medicine doctor will tell me just lay in bed for, even if you're not sleeping, just lay there for nine hours. But I'm like, with someone who deals with things like insomnia, like I I'll stay meditating for those nine hours. It's really hard to float into that deep sleep state, mm. you know, and I know that there's probably people listening to that who, um, and I, who can probably really, really relate. So that's interesting. What you're, you said it was a Chinese medical doctor who told you to stay in bed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like completely different from the, like the Western sleep science would say, don't stay in bed. If you're not sleeping, wake up. But there's mm-hmm. a different view here between the East and the West because what she's encouraging you to do there is if you're staying in bed, wishing you could be asleep when you're not, staying in bed is not a good idea. But actually looking at the power of rest. So saying, okay, I'm not going to get back to sleep. I'm too wired. I've got too much stuff in my mind. That's not going to happen. But at least I can rather than expend energy by waking up, I can stay in bed and be in some form of kind of meditative awareness. Like if you only get four hours sleep, but then you manage to do three hours of like a yoga nidra practice, a lying down meditation practice. Okay, it may not add up to kind of eight hours sleep, but at least you've got four hours sleep and then three hours of deep rest. And deep yeah. rest can have profound benefits. So that's interesting because that advice, I would say, is good advice if you to lie in bed if you're lying there intentionally with the intention to rest. But if you're lying there with the intention to sleep and not being able to, then that kind of dichotomy there, that kind of conflict in what's happening and your experience, that will be non-restful. So a lot of stuff in the bed, sorry, in the bed, a lot of stuff in the book is about what to do if you can't sleep. You know, it's like, okay, this is how, uh, it'd be great if you're getting this amount of sleep, but if you can't, here are some breathing exercises you can do. Here's some deep relaxation you can do. Here's some yoga nidra you can do. So at least you make use of that time. Um, And once you release the pressure to try and be asleep when you're not asleep, sleep will happen naturally. You know, sleep is a, is a automatic biological process that will happen in the absence of stresses that prevent it from occurring. Like all the sleep hygiene hacks, they don't address those stresses. They address like change the outer environment of your bedroom, 
to make it easier to fall asleep. Now, if you're working with normal levels of stress, but hey, after the last 18 months of a global pandemic, who the hell is working with normal levels of stress? Most people are more stressed than usual, right? So those those sleep hygiene hacks, it's like offering a, 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 a Band-Aid to someone who's been in a, in a car crash if you're working with high levels of stress and especially trauma. Those stuff, they're not, not going to touch the sides. But if you can look at regulating your nervous system through deep relaxation, uh, through kind of rest and seeing rest as a bridge into sleep, then sleep is much more likely to occur because you're removing the stresses that prevent sleep from occurring. Yeah, those Western medicine hacks, like they piss me off. They're just like, yeah, um, are I don't they, the most simple. I know they mean well, but it's the most simplest things. Like make sure you know all the curtains are are closed. I'm like, yes, but like it goes so much deeper than that. What do you mean? Yeah, I mean the blue like the blue light thing, right? There, everyone knows not not looking at your phone and stuff. Like that is good. That that does mm -hmm. impact. I mean, like if you're looking at an iPad for two hours before bed, like iPads are the worst. They like blast that stuff out. Um, then it's like, I think it's about an hour longer it takes you to enter deep sleep and then the deep sleep is less. So there is truth to that, right? But you can be using all the blue light blocking sunglasses you like. You can be having all the blackout blinds, all the kind of warm bars before bed, all these kind of tips and, and tricks you like. But until you regulate your nervous system, you're gonna be staring at the ceiling till morning because those things aren't affecting the nervous system. I mean, the blue light one is a little bit because it's actually affecting the kind of uh, the, the release of melatonin, but we need a stronger medicine. And to be honest, if those sleep hygiene hacks work, we wouldn't have the epidemic of sleeplessness we currently got. It's kind of a little bit, um, Paula, what kind of uh, therapist are you? I am a mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapist and hypnotherapist. Ah, interesting. So, mm -hmm. uh, I, I was just thinking there because again, it's a bit like some of the therapeutic things we get. I don't know, but in the UK, they'll give you like a, a six week course of therapy that you can get for free on the National Health Service. But it's like these sleep hygiene hacks. It's kind of, uh, again, it's mainly just behavioral, but without any of the mindfulness base or compassion base. So it's like change certain things. And with those, you see results actually quite quickly, but they're not long lasting. And I think that's a bit like the sleep hygiene hacks is like making these behavioral changes, makes little changes, um, but it doesn't affect the long-term problem. It doesn't get to the, the root cause, which again, as I've said again and again, is a dysregulated nervous system. If you can calm the dysregulated nervous system by breathing really, really slowly and by progressively relaxing your body and by doing lying down meditations where you're in the hypnagogic, such as yoga nidra, that is way better than any sleep hygiene hack. Yeah, the sleep hygiene hacks and those very kind of purely behavioral therapeutic techniques are, they touch the tip, 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 tip mm. of the iceberg. I remember when I first tried therapy out and I didn't immediately fall into very impressive therapists, I guess, you know, for lack of a better mm. word, but that were just kind of giving me tips and behavioral things. And it was so frustrating because when someone is just throwing that kind of advice at you, I remember all I could think was, yeah, but like, you don't understand how this feels. Yes, like there's something feels. deeper. And the yeah. difference between MB, CBT, it's like cognitive therapy, but the MB, the mindfulness base completely changes the game. It's like, how do I feel in my body? 
how does this feel to me before I make these cognitive behavioral changes? It's like so important. And you just see it in the results. Like the difference in results between CBT and mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy are huge. It's like, it's just a completely different ball game. Right. Simply by doing the simple things, saying, how do you feel? You know, mm -hmm. how does it feel to you? Not just how does it change, but how does, how do you change the outside? But how does it feel? Which is really like this approach to sleep. Yeah, it's almost like sleep hygiene hacks are like CBT. And hopefully the stuff in this book is like MBCBT. It felt that way as I was reading it. Something that, I mean, it's just so fascinating how deep you've gone into this topic. Because again, this is something that we spend an average of, what, a third of our lives experiencing yeah. that is affecting our waking state in so many ways. Mm. And yet it's a landscape that is riddled with so much mystery for so many of us. Like nobody really talked about this to me in my mental health training. I've definitely had experiences with clients where it's like I'm helping them with all this trauma, all this waking life stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we hit upon insomnia and that, and I'm just like, just like shooting, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall at that point, yeah. because we haven't spent the appropriate amount of time exploring this realm. And I think something that your book does a really good job of showing us is how rich and layered this realm is in a way that is very digestible and practical. Something that, I think would be interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I, I find important to bring up is um, normalizing the fact that we're not biologically evolved necessarily for sleeping in one big chunk. I thought that oh, was yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So I mean, people, pro it's, it's quite well known, this two sleep thing. People might've heard of that, of the fact that before the industrial revolution um, and in fact, most pre-industrial civilizations today or, or, or uh, people who have been untouched by Western industrial civilization in inverted commas um, still sleep this way is that we would sleep in two chunks. So we'd sleep biphasically. So nowadays, most people in the West sleep monophasically, one big chunk, right? We aim for this eight hours a night thing. Whereas uh, with multiple Latino exceptions, right? Of, and in, in Europe as well, most of us try and sleep monophasically. Um, that's a really weird way to sleep. Like we weren't sleeping like that. We've only been trying that out for the last couple of hundred years. Um, and it comes in line with the industrial revolution and with the working hours that these industrialists set um, alongside uh, electric lighting, the introduction of coffee. I mean, really interesting stuff, which we could go into. We had more time, but basically we used to sleep in two bouts. This depended on uh, like when the sun went down and stuff like that, but you have to be really rich to afford candles. So most people went asleep within like an hour or so of the sun going down. So there would be seasonal fluctuations. A lot of this re research was done in the UK when you get big fluctuations in the summer, the sun might go down like 10 PM in the winter, the sun might go down at 4 PM. So you get big fluctuations in the UK, but I'm sure it's changes. I'm sure it's a, a similar thing in other cultures too, but people would go to sleep when the sun went down, they'd sleep for about three or four hours and then they would wake up. So in the UK, that would be wakefulness between about the hours of midnight and 2 a.m. And then they would fall back asleep from about 2 a.m. until the sun rose. So they were still hitting like seven to nine hours. But crucially, there was a two-hour 
wakefulness in the middle of the night. So much so that in England, pubs were reopened. Like people would go and have a pint of beer in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> people would go into their fields. Farmers would wake up and milk their cows. It was believed the milk you got from the cow uh, between the two sleeps. It was even like written. They were called. It was called the between the two sleeps. That kind of two-hour gap. Um, people would do stuff like, and we have like songs uh, that were written about the second sleep. We have a 15th century prayer manual from Portugal uh, that gives you certain prayers to do between the two sleeps. So this was like normal. People would say, oh, yeah, these are the prayers to do between the two sleeps. Like Everyone was doing this. And then in the late 1800s, you start to see less and less cultural references to this um, until it's completely died out. And this is because the introduction of artificial light, gas light, closely followed by electric light, the introduction of coffee. Uh, that was brought into England first, and then England being the center of the empire, like running 20% of the world, the sleeping habits affect a lot of that. And it's really interesting anthropological sources here, which people can research more about. But basically, the main thing is, we didn't used to sleep in one go, we sleep in two chunks. And like the vast majority of the world's population used to do that. So then, interestingly, 1900, in the New York Times, you get the first reference to something called insomnia, it's like this, they, they refer to it as a newfangled malaise. It's like a new disease. They're like, there's this new thing called insomnia. No one can fucking sleep anymore. It's like, yeah, you can't sleep anymore because now suddenly everyone's trying to sleep in this crazy way, this experimental way. Um, so you get insomnia. And then also you get reports of, still nowadays, the most common form of insomnia, and back then too, is called sleep maintenance insomnia. Here's the description of sleep maintenance insomnia. You can fall asleep. When you first go to sleep, you stay asleep for three to four hours. You then wake up and feel completely aroused and awake for one to two hours. And then there is the ability to fall asleep after that. That is a description of how we used to sleep. Has no one put this together and gone like this? This looks a bit suspicious, doesn't it? Like the most common form of insomnia is probably not insomnia at all. It's people displaying a totally normal anthropological sleep cycle. The fact that no one's like... I just don't understand how no one's made this link before. In the book, I'm like, guys, doesn't this seem suspicious to anybody? There could be millions of misdiagnosed insomniacs who are not actually insomniacs at all, but they go to the doctor and describe this sleep pattern. The doctor knows nothing about the anthropological basis of sleep and how we used to sleep. So they prescribe medication to dull you down and make you sleep like everybody else. I mean, there could be a time in like 200 years hence when we go, dudes, do you remember that weird time around the digital revolution when they all tried to stay asleep for eight hours and none of them could do it? And they all got these mental health problems. They all take these little pills to make them sleep. Like, wasn't that a crazy time? In the same way, we look back in the Middle Ages and go, do you remember when they used to get headaches? They used to like drill into their head and do trepanning to bleed them. It's like, wasn't that a crazy time? So, well, that's all they knew. They were trying their best. Us too, but I don't think we're trying our best. It's all we know, but like ignorance is not like, does not stand up in a court of law. It's like, this is, we've, we've now got this research. We need to completely rethink how we're looking at sleep. And I mean, across the board, like the wake up times for kids to get to school is ridiculous. We are robbing our children of their REM sleep. REM happens at the end of the sleep cycle, not at the beginning. So by making kids wake up at like seven o'clock in the morning, when we know they're not going to bed at nine o'clock, they're up all night on their phones and stuff. It's like affecting the neuro neurological health of the, of the planet and the next generation. The fact we don't give naps at school is crazy. The fact we don't allow people to nap at work. Like traders could make more money. I mean, God, this doesn't have to be philanthropic. If you just want to make more money, which everyone seems to do, give your workers a one hour nap. 
in the afternoon. They will perform better in the afternoon and make you more money. So it doesn't even need to be on a compassionate basis, just like a logical basis. We need to sleep more. We will be better as human beings if we do. Sorry, I feel like one of those like Christian preachers in the pulpit. Please. And I'm over here like I will give take anything <laughs> in that involves greater sleep. And I'm sure anyone who's listening to this feels the exact same way because I have experienced life with a great night of sleep and I have experienced life with no sleep. And yeah. the difference is insane. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Like yeah. you feel like a, you're walking dead mm-hmm. is what it feels like. Yeah. You feel more moody, more sensitive. I, I feel more emotional. Life feels darker. Yeah. Like it just doesn't feel the same. And you know, and neurologically it's different. Like after an insufficient night's sleep, so that's like less than five hours sleep. I'm sorry, less than six hours sleep. Your amygdala, which is the threat center in the brain. People call it the fear center. That's not quite right. It's a threat center. That which registers threat and especially irritation. Because what is irritation but the threat of another? It's like, they are, they are not moving quick enough or they're saying something that annoys us. So actually irritation and threat are quite closely linked, which is an interesting point. Anyway, your threat center in the brain is 60, 60% more activated after a night of insufficient sleep. So you know when you're just pissed at everyone when you're not, when you're like, when you're just tired, you're not going to have sleep. It's like, you're not just psychologically pissed at everyone. Neurologically, you are 60% more pissed or, or uh, are likely to be triggered into being pissed off with people than you are after a, a night's sleep. It's like, that's crazy. Not 16%, 6-0. That means that after a night's sleep, we're like, I mean, we're the same person, I guess, but our, our response to people, our psychological responses are massively different when we don't get enough sleep. Um, and also remember that when we're dealing with our, our partners and our loved ones and they're kind of, you know, they're being really annoyed with us or something. If we know, like, oh, they didn't get enough sleep, you know, it's maybe not their fault. It's their brain doing this. We can have more compassion. We can open up. We can, I don't know, suggest a nap maybe. <laughs> I think that'll be helpful. You know, it's so important to me about helping people understand these anthropological roots of how we evolved to sleep Mm. is taking away all the heaviness around some of these sleep patterns. Because as you were saying in the beginning, that, that fear of not being able to fall asleep Mm. actually make like, it ensures that we won't really be able to fall asleep or it's going to make it much harder. It's kind of the same as, you know, panic disorder where it's not really the the feeling of panic that people are afraid of that that's causing the panic to keep coming back. It's the fear of it coming back that keeps it coming back. So we can normalize, Hey, it's actually pretty normal and even healthy to wake up in the middle of the night and you can use those couple hours for whatever it is. Like it's totally fine. It's not a big deal. It takes away the heaviness of it. And as that heaviness goes away, as you talk about in the book, you know, and as Valentina and I have experienced as that heaviness goes away, we're able to ease back into that state. Yeah. Yeah. Just to know that it's okay. You know, like, it was so much mental health stuff, right? It's just that person who says, God, you're looking so much better today. And you're like, oh, that really made a difference. They said that. I, you know what? I do feel better today. It's like we're so suggestible from others, let alone to ourselves. So if we're in that state and it's like, I really need to go to sleep. I really need to go to sleep. It's like we're flipping on the fight or flight system and now we can't get to sleep. There's cortisol in our system. Whereas 
and it becomes just like you said, this kind of a loop. Like as my meditation teacher defined insomnia as the process of trying to fall asleep. We can't try to fall asleep. Sleep is the culmination, not doing, not trying to do anything at all. So far better than try to fall asleep, try and deeply relax. I mean, that's something you can actively engage, you know, whether it's progressive muscular relaxation, following a yoga nidra CD, uh, yoga nidra audio, where it's doing a certain breathing technique before sleep. That's something you can actively do, but actually will lead to sleep. But the process of like closing your eyes really tight and like, oh, when am I going to go to sleep? That doesn't work, right? So there are things we can do to get to sleep, but trying to fall asleep isn't one of them, ironically. It's all the other things we need to put in place that will allow sleep to happen. It reminds me of a crying baby. This is how I see myself when I can't fall asleep. Is like in the past, I would do anything to just like, I'll do anything to fall asleep. And Mm. where I'm at now is because I do a lot of breath work Mm -hmm. and that helps maintain my nervous system and re-regulate. Yeah. Has not dipped into the, the sleep. The sleep thing must be deeper. I think right now, like some, I've, I'm processing a lot. So do you know what knows? it was when you said, you said your sleep, you said you were having really good sleep and then suddenly it became not so good. Can you see mm-hmm. any, anything that occurred in your daily life that could have triggered that or led to that? I think some, I, I started tapping into some deep traumas that I that I have not seen before. Mm-hmm. That'll do it. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's, and it's not even completely at my conscious mm-hmm. level yet. Mm-hmm. I can just tell something is trying to show itself. Mm-hmm. And, and it's what interesting. Because, hmm? What are your dreams saying? Are you able to remember them? That's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I remember I had one dream with this random guy who I went to high school with and we saved a bunch of kids from a bus, mm. a bus that was like going rogue, a school bus. And then we, we saved them all. And then right when we saved them all, we were like, oh my God, we saved them again. And it was you and me who saved them last time. That's a good dream. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. If you're everything in the dream, right? You've mm-hmm. got like a bus full of your inner child and you saved your inner child. Oh, wow. Uh, who knows? Uh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> if it were my dream, sorry, it's very unprofessional. Me, If it were my dream, I might see it as that. Of course, it's your dream. But that's a lot what, that I'm working with right now is my inner child. I did an inner child meditation the other day to try and speak with her oh. and see where she, you know, I wanted to let her know I'm here for you. You're completely safe. I have your back now. That's cool. And I, and she looked at me like a deer in headlights. And I was trying to get through to her and she was too scared to even tell me that she was too scared. Mm. So I realized what I'm going to have to do is literally just like sit next to her on the bed. That's mm. as much as she can take right now. And it's been interesting because my, my personality and I can tell you're just like this too. And Paula's like, this is like, we like dive into things and mm. we're like, just show me like I'm ready to see it. You yeah. know, like we go in the, t- the near death psychedelic experiences, like show us. And I sh- working with this inner child is that's when I made the reference, it's kind of like dealing with my insomnia. It's like crying baby. I, I literally just have to like hold you and pat you until mm. you're just ready to, mm. to do what you got to do. Mm. And last night I could tell him like, Oh, she's wired. Like I'm wired right now. And it's not even that thoughts are going through my head. Nothing, nothing like that. I'm just up. Mm. So I'm like, okay, we're just going to have to deep breathe all Mm -hmm. night. And that's literally all I did all night Mm -hmm. was just deep breathe. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, you have to have an insane level of patience and compassion for yourself when you're doing mm-hmm. that. Because when you're on breath, probably like 3000, you're like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like I'm still here. How yeah, have I not dipped counting. into sleep yet? <laughs> huh? Stop counting. Right. I mean, yeah. no, I definitely don't count. I'm just assuming. Cause I'm like, at like yeah. how many hours of that kind that, of breathing? Know, so let's say, so you didn't sleep last night, but maybe you did like three hours of breath work. So rather than focusing on, fuck, I didn't sleep last night, go, dude, I nailed three hours of breath work. And then just remind yourself of the benefits. Go and look online, like the benefits of slow, deep breathing. Oh, my God. So I did three hours of activating my parasympathetic response, um, regulating my heart rate variability, uh, dropping my blood pressure. Okay, so I didn't sleep, but fuck, that's really cool. You know, the placebo effect's strong, even when it's real, real. that with research, but just reminding yourself of it. But also the nocebo effect is strong. All it takes is like, dude, I had no sleep last night. Like we keep telling ourselves, not that story, because in your case, it was true. You didn't get any sleep last night. But as you, I mean, this is basic stuff, isn't it? If we focus on that, we're going to feel a little more tired. Where if you focus on the fact that you did three hours of breath work last night, brilliant. That's great. Yeah, maybe you're going to feel tired tonight, but your nervous, it's today, but your nervous system is going to be in great shape. You did three hours of breath work. Wicked. It's real. I'm going to be the most oxygenated human on earth <laughs> during this phase. I'm tired, but really oxygenated. Exactly what I mean. Yes. <laughs> that that reframe is so powerful. And I noticed that you also, you, you talk about that in your book, like, you know, when you're in the hypnagogic state, that's stage right before sleep, that it's mm. actually a very similar, it's the state that we kind of take people to when we're doing hypnotherapy yeah. because you're because you're so highly suggestible that you receive that information. And I see you making conscious use of that in there when you're telling people, but as you go to sleep, you're telling yourself, I will recall my dreams. I am a great dream yeah. recaller tonight. Yeah, I mean, this is like and- the classic hypnotherapy stuff, right? It's like, if you look at the brain waves of the hypnagogic state, they aren't just similar to the brain state of someone in hypnosis, they're identical. Like I did some hypnotherapy training in my 20s and my remember the teacher telling me, this old Australian guy, and he was like, "You get a free, uh, you get a free session of hypnosis every time you fall asleep. Don't waste it, and especially don't use it to go. Fuck! I should have said this to that person, or oh my god, I can't believe I did that. Which is what so often we do when we're falling asleep, right? We're kind of reviewing the day, and oh, I said that stupid thing, or why did they think this? You know, I'm I don't want to nocebo anyone, but we need to be aware we're highly suggestible in that state. So far better if you do find you're getting monkey mind when you fall asleep." is as you fall asleep, follow a yoga nidra track or do some a breath work. Do something to kind of allow the mind to be in a really positive state or, or affirmations even better. Like start implanting hypnotic suggestions to sleep well. Um, I mean, that seems like just, it sounds too simple to say fall asleep thinking happy thoughts, but actually in that state, it's not so far off. You know, we really can kind of implant very powerful suggestions in our mind when we fall asleep. And of course, we do want to embrace the shadow. and We do want to look at all the shit that's coming up. But when we're falling asleep at night, that's somehow not the best time to do so. So if that happens, then I suggest waking up, doing some worry writing, which is kind of writing down your worries, and then crucially putting a time the next day or next week, whenever, to, to look at that. There's something in the brain, like worry writing is well known, but what's not so well known is the research on putting an exact time in the future to assess that worry or deal with that problem or have you want to put it uh the brain loves that it kind of shuts off because the goal orientated part of the brain will stay activated until you've given it a time in the future when you're going to deal with it so by saying like 
okay, yeah, well, I really need to talk to my partner about that because, you know, it's really getting me down. Writing that down in the, in the worry journal, but then putting tomorrow at 4 p.m. after that Zoom call, I'm going to call and we're going to have a chat about it. Like signing off, that that goal-orientated part of the brain can switch off. Be like, okay, I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll start back up again at like quarter to four and remind you, you've got to have that conversation. So that's really important too. That's so interesting that you bring that up because in my own experiences with psychotherapy, I know something that I found useful or have found useful is that certain things would come up and I could tell myself like, hey, okay, I see that you're worried about this, but mm -hmm. just remember that you will have an opportunity to process through it exactly. when you have this session next yeah. week. And I actually started telling that to my clients too, like, okay, when this comes up between sessions, let that part of you know, you know, if it's willing to give you a little bit of space right now, that there's a time and place where it will be seen and it will be exactly. heard. And that really, it really does work. Those parts of us want to be seen, those aspects of our brain that are trying to help us plan ahead for whatever, you know, even when you talk about the anxiety dreams. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's yeah. so much here. There's so yeah. much here, but. Yeah, the anxiety dream thing is really cool. Again, the research on that. So this is a cool one, especially a mental health podcast. So uh, difference between anxiety dreams and nightmares is kind of subjective, but let's, actually, let's look at anxiety dream. This is maybe more interesting. So we all know what a nightmare is, but what's an anxiety dream? any dream where the content of the dream is causing one's causing one anxiety. So those dreams where like you can't find the uh, the right station, you're at like a, a train station, you can't find the right platform for your plane, or you're at the airport and you can't find your passport, or those dreams where um, you can't find a key and you're trying to get out or, or corridors and loads of doors are opening up, you know, anxiety dreams, right? Um, especially we have anxiety dreams before big life events. So like we've got a, uh, a date coming up and the night before the date, we have a dream, the date goes terrible and our date hates us or something. Or the night before a big exam, we've all had this, we have the dream that the exam goes terribly. We can't find the exam room, stuff like that. Um, I used to uh, often before uh, big lucid dreaming retreats, have a dream the retreat would go terribly. Everyone was like naked or they like weren't listening to me or they decided they hate me and want their money back and like just classic kind of anxiety dream stuff, right? And then, so I'm looking at that for the book and find this amazing research, which is in line with all the nightmare research, which is basically anxiety dreams are good for you. They're the brain trying to prepare you for the worst, sorry, the mind trying to prepare you for the worst, not so the worst happens, but so you're best met to deal with the worst should it happen. They're like fire drills. So if you, and oh, sorry, and then the research shows because of that, um, if you have an anxiety dream, like they did this study at the Sorbonne Medical School, and it's really hard to get in the suborn medical school only like 10 percent of people make the grade so they were like okay perfect conditions to do a study on dream anxiety because loads of these guys are going to be having dream anxiety uh, and they did like loads of them reported nightmares and anxiety dreams but they found a really interesting correlation that the top five marks that year in the exam um the top five people they all had full-blown nightmares or anxiety dreams the night before the exam that they failed uh, like they couldn't find the exam room one woman like turned over her exam paper and it was a piece of toast, you know, this weird dream stuff. But basically all the dreams were like, you're going to fail the exam. Now, some like really old school views on dreams, like, oh, it's a dream prophecy. Oh yeah, you're going to fail. It's like, and kind of societally, that's what we've been programmed. You have that dream, you just feel shit the next day. Like, oh God, it's going to go really badly. We need to completely flip that on its head. All the science says completely the opposite because the pe there was a direct correlation between those who had anxiety dreams before the exam and how well they did. People who did not have anxiety for that exam did okay. 
those who did have anxiety dreams, they said, we don't know how to, we don't know how to explain it, but we can measure it. There was a cognitive improvement in those who had anxiety dreams before the exam. Um, it makes sense. Like the night before you're going on a holiday to Spain or something, and you have the dream you've forgotten your passport. The next day, you're less likely to forget your passport. But what's the first thing you do? Fucking hell, check my passport because in my dream last night, I lost it. It's not our mind hating on us. It's our mind loving us. It's saying, God, the date tomorrow means so much to you. I'm going to give you a worst case scenario so you can make sure you remember to put your pants on before you go out. If you've had that thing where you're not wearing pants in public or something. Or the exam tomorrow means so much to you. I'm going to give you a worst possible dream about it so that doesn't happen. So you're prepared. So you you check how to get to the exam room and stuff like that. It makes total sense once you see it on paper. But until you're told it, we just buy this lie that they're kind of prophecies and that our mind hates us and that it's trying to kind of beat us up or, or um, you know, negatively affect us. It's completely the opposite. Your mind loves you. Like, I'd be worried now if I had a big lucid dreaming retreat and I don't have an anxiety dream the night before, mm-hmm. then I'd be worried. But, oh, shit, do I not care about this anymore? Am I am I getting too big to, big for my boots? If I have a nice, juicy anxiety dream before a big talk or something, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a good one. I know my mind loves me. It's preparing me for the worst. Like, it's a fire drill, basically. Think of it like that's a fire drill. It's It's designed for you to escape the fire, not so it burns your house down. These are such powerful, powerful reframes. Yes, reframes, exactly that. They feel compassionate and warm. Yeah. You know, so you're like, oh, okay. It's because it's typically like we're afraid of, we're, we oftentimes fear the fear. Yeah. But if we see, if we can reframe this all, it takes less pressure away and allows our nervous systems to kind of just ease into. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Same with nightmares. You know, if you have a yes, I want to dive into nightmares. Oh my god, please! If you have a nightmare after a traumatic event, nightmares are fucking not. Sorry, I'm swearing a lot in this podcast. Um, It's please, yeah, you do. (laughs) However, you need. It's because I feel I just feel relaxed in this. Um, Doesn't say much about my character. Does it when he's relaxed? He swears anyway. um, (laughs) So, if you have a traumatic event, nightmares are a good sign. Like nightmares are horrible. I know that from 20 years ago when I first got into this stuff. And I know it from the last two years from my mom's illness and the breakdown of my personal life, all that kind of stuff. So because I had loads of nightmares then too. So nightmares are horrible. No way around it. But they're acting like a scab. So let's say you cut your arm, right? And then the white blood cells, coagula- the blood coagulates, white blood cells come and a scab is formed. Now, what is a scab? A scab is a protective barrier over the wound to allow healing to occur beneath the surface. That is exactly what a nightmare is doing. A nightmare is a manifestation of the healing process. Why? Because in a nightmare, the mind is going back over the traumatic event, not to re-traumatize ourselves, but to try and work through it, to go like, what could have gone differently? Or why am I feeling this way? Oh, it's because they said this, or this happened, or, or that was a traumatic event. You know, I've heard psychologists who say they're more worried if their client is not presenting with nightmares after a traumatic event than if they are. Because if they are, okay, it's it's tough for them, but at least we know the healing process is in play. Whereas if they're not, they could well be in denial, repression, suppression. Um, so actually nightmares can be a really good sign. Um, for Whether it's minor trauma, like some dude nicked my phone like a few years, a couple of years ago. And um, not the very night after I got my phone stolen, like a mugging, you know, right? Um, a bit on a bicycle. So I was fine. He just kind of drove. He's very mindful, actually. He was to be able to cycle and steal someone's phone, I was like, dude, um, not that night, but the night after that, I had a nightmare about it. 
Um, it was kind of a replay. It was someone stealing the phone. Then I was able to fly up into the sky and stuff like that. Enough for me to know it was linked to the, the mildly traumatic event. And so I write down the dream because, of course, you want to do that. Definitely write down your nightmares. A nightmare is a dream that is shouting. It's shouting to draw your attention to an unintegrated part of the psyche. So don't ignore it. You know, in the new age scene, I've heard this countless times, and it just triggers me every time. Oh, don't write down your nightmares. You'll, you'll manifest them into existence. Don't write down your nightmares. You'll give them your energy. It's like, dude, the opposite. Write down your nightmares. It, like, you know, tell, give the nightmare your attention because it's screaming for it. So every time you turn your back on a nightmare, it comes back. This is why nightmares recur. You want your recurring nightmare to stop recurring? Write it down. Draw it. Speak about it with a friend. Have a lucid dream and actually work with the nightmare while you're in it. Like do everything you can to show your attention to the nightmare. It's paradoxical, but it works. Um, so anyway, I wake up, I write down this dream. And at the end, I actually wrote, thanks, Subby. And by that, I mean, thank, thank you, my subconscious mind. I was literally thanking my subconscious because within just 48 hours, I'd had a trauma integration dream. And I know all the science that that is a good thing. So it was a scary dream. But I knew it was good. It was showing that my psyche was healing and within just 48 hours. So I was kind of glad for that. So we can really get to the point where when we have a nightmare and if let's say we're, we go into therapy and we start discussing something that happened five years ago and we start having nightmares about it, even some therapists might think this. They might think, oh, this is a bad sign. You are re, uh, re-triggering the trauma. Actually, it's a very good sign. It's showing that whatever it was is still there and far better out than in. And the nightmare is a very natural um, and very safe way to process trauma. Um, so if we have a nightmare when we start to go into therapy or start talking about something again, we can see that as a good sign, not a bad sign. Um, with high levels of PTSD, this is slightly different. So it's really important I put this in. If you have high levels of PTSD, so your PTSD score is really high, then the levels of stress in your body at all times may negate the healing process. Uh, power of dreams, uh, healing power of nightmares. Because when you go into REM sleep, it's the only time that nor, um, in America, you guys call it um, norepinephrine or something like that. Nor- norepinephrine. Yes. So that's the American word for it. Um, that's present in very low levels in your brain 24 hours a day, apart from two and a half hours in a 24 hour period, the two and a half hours that you dream. The only time your brain is absent of that neurochemical is when you dream. Why? So you can dream about stressful events, nightmares, scary things, and not actually be stressed. So it kind of removes the stress hormone. It's like a safety mechanism. And the same way you get paralyzed when you dream, uh, when you dream, that's the first safety mechanism. The kind of internal safety mechanism is the reduction of that certain stress hormone, right? However, people with PTSD or high levels of PTSD, their stress hormones are so high at all times that when they dream, they've still got trace levels of that stress hormone, which means when they have nightmares, they're having nightmares in a space that hasn't been made safe by the reduction of that stress hormone, meaning their nightmares can be re-triggering and re-traumatizing. So in that case, people working with PTSD, we've got two options. We need to somehow lower the level of what is it again in American? Norepinephrine. 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 We need to lower that before we dream or while we dream. Before we dream would be slow, deep breathing before bed, doing something to rapidly reduce uh, the levels of that stress hormone before you go to sleep or after awakening in the middle of the night. And the second thing is to do it within the dream, have a lucid dream. If you're in a really scary nightmare and then you suddenly go, oh, 
oh, dude, I'm dreaming. This isn't real. I mean, okay, it's still a scary nightmare. There's still zombies and whatever the scary stuff in your nightmare, but at least I know I'm not actually in danger. What happens? A massive drop in stress hormones. You're like, oh, I'm dreaming. I'm safe. I'm not actually in danger. So that's a way to lower those stress hormones. And this is how lucid dreaming is such a powerful method for PTSD healing. Because in the dream itself, it lowers those stress hormones and allows that natural healing capacity of the nightmare to then be re-engaged, um, which before you're lucid often isn't re-engaged if you've got these high levels of stress. I would love to dive into a little bit of lucid dreaming, but before we go into that, mm -hmm. I have a question on nightmares. So when yeah. you have a nightmare, do you, you suggest you write it down mm -hmm. and do you take it at face value at all? Like, is there some truth in what's happening or do you just allow it to simmer into your subconscious and then wait for the, the, the integration to happen later on in your dreams? I mean, if you want to do dream interpretation and stuff, that's a slightly different, like, it's just a different T and I don't go into that, to that in the dream, in the, uh, in the book. So I talk about mm -hmm. writing it down, acknowledging it, speaking it out loud um if you want to uh, actually kind of work with it in the lucid dream state then do that but no i don't really go into interpretation of it just because that's it's quite subjective and yeah it was just a realm that i didn't go into in my personal practice i'm really into dream interpretation but the practices in the book i wanted to make sure all of them are kind of scientifically validated and once i started to move into dream interpretation it became the waters became muddied slightly. Not, I don't think, because dream interpretation is unscientific. I think we just don't have the science on it yet. Mm. Um, I think it, it totally can. People who, I mean, God, there are still people out there who think that dreams are meaningless. There's this kind of theory that was big in the late 90s that dreams were just caused by the firing of neurons. Uh, I mean, that's luckily been completely debased now. We know that dreams are about reconsolidation of memory and integration of trauma, primarily those two things. Um, but there's absolutely meaning to dreams. Not all dreams. Not all dreams are laden with mystical meaning. But it's not random firing. The brain is working through things in a very systematic way. And there's a real wisdom to dreams. And especially a wisdom to nightmares. So with lucid dreaming, I mean, I don't even know what my question is because it's such a new topic for me. It just, I guess, for someone who's interested in using lucid dreaming to help themselves heal and optimize their mental health, optimize their life, to mm -hmm. utilize it as a tool in life, how can they even start? Okay, so lucid dreaming is the process of training the, uh, I mean, psychologically, it would be referred to as the reactivation of self-reflective awareness within the seemingly unconscious REM dreaming sleep state. Now, what does that mean? It means any dream where you've been like, oh, dude, I'm dreaming as I'm dreaming. Now, most people have had that experience like at least once in their life. Uh, anyone who hasn't, I'd ask you to think of a nightmare where in the nightmare you went, I've got to wake up, I've got to wake up. If you had that, you're actually lucid as well. So it's being consciously aware within the dream, but not waking up. So you're sound asleep, but you're in the dream. You're like, dude, this is all a dream. Oh my God, this is so cool. And then with practice, you can direct. Uh, some people say control. I say direct the dream at will. Um, so that's lucid dreaming. A lot of people know that. How does lucid dreaming relate to mental health? Essentially, anything you can treat through hypnotherapy, you can treat through lucid dreaming because it's a very similar state. You know, in the same way as a hypnotherapist is taking a strand of your conscious mind, dropping it down to the subconscious and planting a statement or new kind of program of healing intent. In the lucid dream, you're doing exactly the same thing, but you're going right to the bottom. You're going right to the depths of the unconscious mind um, simply because you can't get more unconscious than asleep. Whereas in the hypnosis state, you're, you're not asleep. 
uh, which make, means it way more accessible. Hypnotherapy is way more accessible than lucid dreaming, but lucid dreaming does go deeper. So it takes much longer to get there for a lot of people, but once you're there, you can have really profound impacts. Um, so it can be used for, yeah, anything you treat, sorry, the puppy's moving. Um, are we on video or just audio? Yeah, no, audio. Okay, I cool. know, I soon her. enough. Okay, oh, hi, puppy. I can see her. It's, it's wow. real. She kind of <laughs> what knows a pretty the, dog. She knows the one hour mark for like Zoom chats. And after about an hour, she's like, dude, you should be finished right now. She starts fidgeting. Anyway, there she is. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. And when we say goodbye, like when I say goodbye and I go to switch the camera off, then she'll start barking. She knows that that means the end of the session. Wow. Well, maybe everyone's dogs do that. Maybe I'd, everyone thinks their dog's the cleverest, right? Anyway, lucid dreaming. How is it linked to mental health stuff? Because you're conscious in the unconscious mind. Uh, and especially for nightmares, like lucid dreaming is one of the most um, powerful and exciting new interventions for post-traumatic stress disorder nightmares. Uh, and loads of science on this. I mean, there's just Google the science, anyone listening, but if not, then there's all the scientific studies are listed in the book as well. Um, basically, if you can train somebody, and lucid dreaming is a learnable skill, by the way. There's certain like step-by-step -step things you can do to learn how to have lucid dreams. Uh, we did a study just two months ago, actually, with the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California, and we had 55 people, all with full-on PTSD. You had to have a PTSD score to get onto the study. So everyone had PTSD. Um, and in a one-week study, 74% uh, of them had a lucid dream, which is really high. I was wondering whether we could get one of them to have a lucid dream. 74% had a lucid dream. And of that, a high percentage had what we call the healing lucid dream, which was they became lucid and they intentionally um, either called in their trauma or healed the past themselves they felt was wounded by the trauma, which in many cases was the inner child. A lot of people doing inner child work in the lucid dream. Uh, and we had really profound results. And in fact, that's th those studies have been done before. We know that lucid dreaming can stop nightmares. And we know that lucid dreaming can greatly decrease the um, negative intensity of nightmares. But actually, the study with ions, we haven't released the data yet, but we were doing something with a saliva sample, looking at the level of anti-inflammatory biomarkers in the bloodstream. So our hypothesis, which is quite audacious, is that, but if we prove it, then it won't seem so audacious, is that lucid dream healing is so powerful that you will see a reduction of, of inflammation in the physical body. It will have a physical effect. So basically before sleep, people take a spit test, which shows how many inflammatory markers are in the bloodstream, in the uh, uh, saliva. No, sorry, in the bloodstream, that's the point. You can do something to saliva where you can see blood markers in it, apparently. Then they have a lucid dream, hopefully do this amazing healing in their lucid dream, embrace their inner child or, or show love to the wounded path themselves or call forth their trauma and say, you know, trauma, I release you, you know, whatever it is. And then they wake up, they do another spit test, and then we would expect to see a reduction in inflammation, which if we do that, we've not only proved that lucid dreaming can have a physical healing effect on the body, we'll have actually proved in many ways an aspect of the mind-body connection because a lot of the other studies that try and prove that you can look at variables or it was to do with the, uh, the way they interacted with the researcher or it was to do with the other people in the group. Um, whereas the lucid dream is like a closed circuit. You're asleep, right? So there's, it's, it's you and you. There's nothing else out. There's no other variables. So it's a really tight way. It's a really tightly controlled space to see how the mind can affect the body. So do you have like quick tips for people when just starting out with lucid dreaming do they write i know writing down your dreams is one of yeah them. so first of all like work on dream recall so train yourself to remember your dreams 
uh, and then write your dreams down. So falling asleep with a strong intention to remember your dreams, writing them down, reminding yourself that everybody dreams. There's no way to stop the human brain from dreaming. So know that first of all, people think they don't dream. You, you do dream. Um, you maybe just don't remember your dreams, but when did you last try? So actively try and remember your dreams and write them down. And once you start to write down your dreams, you'll start to spot patterns. You might see, like, oh, I always dream of being back at school or I always dream of um, being back in my family home where I don't live anymore. You'll start to see these patterns. And when you see them, you, you start to make these lucidity triggers. You say, well, look, if between now and breakfast, when you're falling asleep, if between now and breakfast, I see that kid from school again, I must be dreaming. Or if between now and breakfast, I'm back in my family home, I must be dreaming. You start to create these lucidity triggers. And eventually, if you put enough attention on them, a very strange thing will happen. You'll be in a dream, completely just dreaming, no, no awareness at all. And you'll see that kid from school who's one of your dream signs, it's called, these kind of recurring aspects of the dream. And you just get this weird feeling in the dream of like, oh, I'm supposed to remember something here. Like, well, and then you get this matrix moment of like, whoa, you're my freaking dream sign. You're, this means I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming right now. And then most of the time you get so excited, you wake up. That's the way most people's first lucid dream goes. Like you, you wake up in the matrix and then boom, you're in bed. You're like, dude, what just happened? But with practice, you can learn to have that wakeful experience, but not actually wake up. And then you're like fully conscious in your dream. And it's as real as this, but it's like a virtual reality simulation. Like, you know, your body's asleep in bed. You know, it's a three-dimensional projection, but it looks real. And it's just like that bit in, uh, well, in Inception, in the Matrix, all those bits where he's like, oh, I'm real. And he's kind of looking at his hands like, yeah, dude, you're inside your mind. So it's really fun as well as really healing. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't wait. I'm about to go full on fire mode into lucid dreaming yeah. and healing in my sleep. Uh, yeah, Charlie, it's so I'm going to have all of your work all over my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're about to start talking about sleep and dreams way more regularly on oh, this podcast. Good. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time, Charlie. Thank you. It's been really fun. This was so fun. And we love to close up with our guests and ask them, what is the defini definition of mental health for you? Oh, what is the definition of mental health? Uh, mental health, mental healthiness, um, kindness. Kindness, I think. I think when we're in a state of real mental healthiness, kindness to ourselves and others becomes the default mode setting. So I think that probably. Mm, I love that. I love that. Mm. I love that. And I can feel that from your spirit. You have a really warm, kind spirit. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And we love to guess our guest zodiac signs. Okay. Can we guess yours? Um, okay. Ooh. If one of us gets it right, just don't react because mm -hmm. we both want to go. Okay. I think you're an Aries. Mm -hmm. Pisces. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are you? I'm double Leo. Oh! <laughs> Okay, yeah, I so, was close. Well, I, I apologize. That's all the swearing. It's like, dude's double Leo. It's not his fault. <laughs> I was, I was thinking either Aries or Sagittarius, but you're so fire. Yeah, so I'm you're a fire Leo star. Sun, Leo Rising. Um, Jeb, what's the balance one again? Um, Libra, 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 uh, Libra Moon. So my internal oh, world is all one. about fairness and balance. But yeah, externally I'm Leo, and ascendingly I'm Leo. Yeah, double Leo. That's so cool. Paul Leo, Leo over here. Oh, cool. And you are <laughs> Valentina? What are you? Aries. Aries. Oh, okay, so Aries, Leo, nice mix. What are your moon? Have, yeah. You know your moon? I'm Scorpio moon. Oh, cool. I'm and a you, Paula? Moon. 
moon's always more interesting because it's like that's the internal world you know i'm always more interested like what's your moon sun what's actually going on in there because like we've got the external sun but like what's the moon doing you know what's that feminine aspect doing yeah Mm. oh interesting yeah the moon when i read about moon signs i've always related to aries and then i read about the moon and i was like holy shit yes yeah that makes so much sense yeah me too i've always had this like obsession with fairness and I was like, there's nothing in the Leo traits that talks about that. And then I was like, oh, about the moon sign. Of course, that makes total sense. Yeah. That's so funny. I know. I just yeah. chose Pisces from a purely like analytical. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Let me ask that. Why did you say what you said? Well, okay. Yeah. So I said the Pisces one because yeah. Pisces is known for being really connected to dream worlds oh, and astral realms and these other dimensions kind of known for that so you didn't feel like a Pisces but I was like let me just throw this one out there Uh, no I see I'm a classic Leo because Leos were so arrogant we know nothing about any other star signs (laughs) Uh, I guessed Aries because of the fire and then I feel a very youthfulness coming from you so Aries are like the I don't know if you know but they're like the child zodiac signs Mm -hmm. of like fire they're the they're the first fire so they're Our last guest was also a Leo. We have a surprising number of fire signs coming Mm -hmm. onto this podcast, actually. We're bringing in the fire. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Charlie, where can everyone find you and where can they, we'll, we'll put a link to your book in our show notes. I know Mm -hmm. that they can pre-order it. Um, yeah. Where can they find you? What are you working on? Yeah. So charliemorley.com is my website, but apparently if you just put Charlie lucid, into google then all my stuff comes up but yeah i'm on instagram and facebook and all that kind of stuff um but yeah charlie morley put that into google you'll find all my stuff amazing thank you so much cool thank, thank you. you so 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 much i cannot wait to re-listen to this and pick up on all of it again oh, i can't wait to start popping out the matrix yeah with my eyes closed. <laughs> that's what i'm ready for all right, Charlie, we will talk to you soon. Have a beautiful, beautiful Thank day. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. And Charlie, that was such an amazing conversation. That was um, the academic in me is so freaking excited to dive into every aspect of this book and research. And just to know this is the first time in my life that I've come across teachings that are this practical and scientifically based at the same time in regards to sleep. Like it's so digestible and so relevant. And for me, so metaphysical at the same time. Like I can't help but think about how there's been so many philosophers that talk about the parallels between dreaming and being awake between the sleep state and being awake and how similar these two experiences are. And with this work that Charlie is doing, we're actually finding pathways into how to wake up in the dream, which is so crazy to me and exciting and definitely diving into this. You know what actually came to my attention as we were talking in the podcast Charlie was saying how the t- when he was dealing with insomnia, there were times when he didn't know whether he was sleeping or awake when he was awake. And that triggered a memory in me. You guys have heard me talk about how I have experienced 
conscious timeline jumping in my waking sober state very spontaneously. It feels exactly to what not sleeping, not having a good night of sleep feels like the next day where you're literally just like floating in between dimensions and you have, it's, it's a very particular experience. So when he said that, I'm like, this, this is wild. There's like two worlds that we live in one when we're awake and one that we're asleep. And it's all the matrix, but like we have so much power over all of how they could go. I mean, it's so wild. And just being able to have some information on it, like we, you and I for sure have spent so much of our life engaging with how to be more conscious in life and how to consciously navigate this body and this whole emotional experience in our life. But we haven't really done that when it comes to our sleeping. So definitely it feels like the next frontier for sure. I'm about to go full on Sinistera Aries fire sign mode into sleeping. It's going to be my next obsession. There's a whole world. It's like an ocean out there. I'm going to do it with you. I'm I'm ready. I mean, I already have like, I, we didn't get a chance to talk to him about this because I mean, there's so much here. So like we had to pick and choose, but I, I'm curious also what'll happen as I develop a more conscious relationship with this aspect of my experience, because you know that I have dreams that. Oh shit. Oh my God. Damn it. (laughs) I know. I would have loved to hear what he had to say about that. Yeah. Paula in her shaman dreams, prophet dreams. If Paula has a scary dream and she tells the family, we're all like, oh fuck. (laughs) Everyone prepare yourselves. Her dreams are crazy. They come true. But it'll be super cool for me to start being able to differentiate between what's the profit dream or what's, a, you know, a nightmare scab dream or what's an anxiety dream to just and to start knowing that my brain is doing these things consciously and that this is actually my machinery effectively working. And I can and I, it's like an operator's manual. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Charlie, what have you done now? You guys know. If me and Paula become obsessed with something, you're about to come along for the ride. <laughs> come along for the ride, pretty fam. Pretty fam. Pretty mental fam. Pretty fam. All right, you guys. We love you so, 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 so much. Tune in with us Mondays at 6 a.m. EST. Los queremos mucho, mucho, mucho. And just remember that every single part of you is welcome here and loved here. Bye.